stop, right? And so in any language, slow down, think ahead, open up, pause often. Slow down, think ahead, open up, pause often. Those are the four key ingredients that helped me bring my life in the stop. Because we're all from California. We have this thing in California called the California stop. And what is that? You just coast through. You just kind of go through. I have gift certificates from that. <laughs> California stop. You know what? We, we keep California stop. We need to come to a complete rest. A, a moment of pause. Stop, right? Now, what I used to say in talking about this idea of slow down, looking at Jesus' life, right? He's 100% man, 100% God. And we see him actually finding rest, searching for rest. And usually we see him withdrawing or removing himself to be alone on one of two reasons. One, overwork. Number two, discouragement. When his friend John the Baptist was killed, he removed himself because he was discouraged. He needed time. That's a good time to be alone and to refresh. The other is an intense burst of work right? You're doing a bunch of stuff. And we kid ourselves, guys, right? We say something like, you know, I'm just in a bit, how are you? Oh, busy. I'm in a busy season. Okay, no. Seasons of life are like seasons of California. There's no winter. There's no summer. It's just the same. It's like living in San Diego. It's where does spring start and fall end, or where does winter start and fall? And what, you don't, there's no break. See, in other states, it snows. Oh, it's winter. Not here right? It's different. So we're in a busy season. That's a lie. Life is the busy season, 365 days of the year. So here's what Jesus says in Mark 6:31 in your notes. Uh, then Jesus said, let's get away from the crowds a while and rest. Let's get away from... Now, here's the thing. If all these crowds are following Jesus, I'm going to read into the text a little bit. Doesn't he have to say no he has to say no. In other words, when do we stop? So he has all of these crowds around him. And here's how I know the crowds are around him. And I know the crowds were asking him to stay. It doesn't say it in the text. I'm inferring. But listen to the rest of the verse. There were so many people coming and going. He still has people coming. That's a verb. There's a bunch going that have already had their moment with him, but now there's, they're going away. There's people who are coming. Watch this, uh, that Jesus and his apostles didn't have time to eat. Have you ever had lunch in your car? Me too. Not because I want to, but because I'm working. I can't take 20 minutes. <laughs> no, the world will get ahead of me, right? So all of these people coming and going, I think Jesus has to say, you know what? We are done. Bye-bye. How did that person that was right there that needed to see Jesus, how did they feel? I don't know. If it was me, I can tell you how I would feel uh, upset, sad. I waited a long time to see the guy, and now he's getting in a boat and leaving. So if I'm the last one that's turned away, you have to understand what comes next, because Jesus and his disciples got in the boat and left, but the verses say after, the crowds watched him. And they followed along the shore. Do you ever feel like people want more of you? And you try to give it. It could be someone in the office. It could be a client, right? And they want more of you. They're watching you. Where did he, where, okay, where, where? And they follow. So Jesus wants a moment of rest. He gets in the boat, floats, rows away with his disciples. But the people, the crowd, the people he said no to, 
follow him. And when he gets out of the boat, guess who's there? Me. The guy he said no to back there, and now I'm back again. What do we do? What do we do? Do we say no? Well, some of us go into this multitasking mode. Now, I did say yesterday that most of us, we don't have it. Guys simply don't have it, right? Mostly the gals. But let me kind of, uh, real quick, if you can fry an egg and drink water at the same time, if you're that multitasking, uh, let me kind of read the definition of multitasking. You can kind of determine. First of all, multitasking uh, was originally a computer term. When the first computer came out that allowed multiple windows, that's when the term multitasking was introduced into our language. It was never meant for people. It was meant for computers, that it could do multi-sensory processing at one time. The clinical definition of multitasking is this, and you can decide whether you have it, engaging in two or more activities at the same time. Two or more activities, so on your phone and trying to talk to your kids, multitasking. Texting and talking to your wife. Uh, reading while talking to somebody else. Uh, driving and having lunch in the car. Or truck, in this case. Because apparently everybody in Fresno in the parking lot has a truck. You can, you can see my rental car clearly. I feel like I shouldn't be here. Uh, here's the negative effects of multitasking, doing two or more things at once, according to Dr. Archibald Hart. Multitasking is not only uh, ineffective for learning, but many scientists are now saying it also produces significant stress. Further research from Dr. Hart reveals that a high level of multi-processing and a simultaneous multi-sensory input, doing two things at once, has destructive effects on the pleasure system of the brain. The bottom line is this, multitasking allows little or no time for recovery. See, there is good stress and bad stress. There's a book out now that talks about the benefits of stress. She's wrong. <laughs> Flat out wrong. The book is under a lot of criticism, and I don't want people to get the wrong opinion to say, you know what, I need more stress in my life. Because the good stress is not simply embracing the stress or busyness you have. That's not it. The good stress is eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. -E -S -S. And the only type of good stress is pause. For example, if you go to the gym, right, you like to lift weights or work out, you maybe go for 23 hours in a row, right? You work out for 23 hours and then you take an hour off, right? No. You go and you put your body under stress, what we call distress, and then recovery helps your body healthier. Make sense? So you stress is the 23 hours after the one-hour workout. See, we don't work out for 23 and rest one. We work out for one or two, and we rest for 22 or 23. And the recovery time, the difficulty is we don't allow for recovery time. We've got to slow down, you know, uh, tap the brake, like I tell my daughter as she approaches a stop sign. The next one's think ahead, think ahead. And let me ask you this question as we think ahead, because we have those goals in life, right? Like we'd like to be here in a month, or we'd like to be here in uh, two years or five years. Let me ask you this question. Can doing more good things bring about more bad things? Can doing more good bring more bad? Can doing more good bring more bad? I ask that because I like doing good stuff. You like doing good stuff. You like to help people. See, if you were somebody, and I'll be extreme here, 
If you were saying, Craig, you know what? I really don't have time because you know, every night around 11 o'clock, I go to the bar, I get hammered, and then I sell crack on the corner. I would say, you know what? We probably need to rethink that. That's something that we would all agree, you know what? You should say no to that. That's a no. And that's extreme, I understand. What if you said, every night at 10 o'clock, I feed the homeless? You gotta knock that off. It feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? In other words, rarely do we have to stop doing bad things because we know they're bad. We can give those up easily. Is it, is it hard to give up something good? Yes. Should I feed the homeless? Uh, maybe. Just, just remember, all of those good things have to correspond with your season of life. If you're married with kids, you may have to say no. I'm not advocating not feeding the homeless. Please understand. I think it's a worthwhile cause. I think we should all do it. What I'm saying is, it, is it for everyone to do? How many things do we plug in before something pops or a breaker goes, like we talked about last night? Now, I will tell you, can doing more good bring more bad? Yes, it can. And you say, well, I don't find any scriptural backing to that. I can give you a testimony. And it started out doing good things, and then it ended up doing some bad things because the workaholism and the adrenaline. I think we have to rest in uncertainty, and it's the word contentment. We talked about it briefly yesterday, but this idea of being content. And what I say is Moses, and this is going to freak you out because you'll never hear this verse read in church usually, especially during like some type of campaign building or capital fund thing. Uh, here's what Moses says, Exodus 36.7. It's not in your notes, but it says this. So Moses gave the command, and this message was sent throughout the camp. Men and women, don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. So the people stopped bringing their offerings. Don't, next weekend, we have enough. We, we meet, don't, we're not giving tomorrow. What? He says to the people, we have enough. Is it possible, this is going to make some of us squirm, is it possible that we can get by in life with good enough? Now, I think you can have excellence, and I think God does require excellence. There's plenty of uh, examples in Scripture. What I'm saying, it's good enough. When God finished creating the world, he rested because he saw it was what? Good enough. Here's our problem. We're never done because never, everything's never good enough. We look at something, we go, how can we make that better? What can we do? We can add this, we can take away this, we can do that. Why we do this, why we do this, we can do a different time. It's good enough. We gotta go with what we got. That is so, I'm still learning that message, good enough. And I'll tell you this, always wanting more is nothing short of an addiction. We have to think ahead. We have to think ahead. Here's three things I think that keep us from contentment. They're not in your notes if you wanna write them down. We're constantly trying to prove our worth. This is my value right? The next one, we try to protect our image. We talked a little bit about that yesterday, but we try to prove our worth, maybe from doing something, or we try to protect our image, hiding in plain sight, or we try and please others. If I don't feed the homeless, if I don't do what they're asking me to do, what will they think of me? And I struggle with that one. I like people to think real highly of me. Oh, Craig's a good guy, right? And we like to feel that way. Here's what I will tell you. And uh, during worship, somebody mentioned it. 
I don't think we need to do better and try harder. Do better, try harder. We hear that. I tell that to my kids. You know what? You got to do better. You got to try harder, you know? When you're swimming, my daughter playing basketball, hun, a little bit more practice. You got to do better. You got to try harder. When it comes to the spiritual life, do better, try harder does not work. It may come to the end result the same, but the journey is different. Do better, try. I don't think we need to do better, try harder. I think we need to believe better. I think our belief structure needs to change. And if we believe better, it comes from the inside out, which is a more authentic way than saying outside in. If I do those things, and I truly want to help the homeless, or I want to help you know, on the mission trip, or I want to serve with kids or youth or serve as an usher at church, all good stuff. I'm not saying that stuff's wrong. But we can get there by doing or by believing and saying God has empowered us for this. We end up at the same destination, but the journey, the journey is what's different. And we want a journey to a balanced life. Proving our worth, protecting our image, pleasing others, do better, try harder. It just doesn't work. The next one is this idea of opening up. We talked about it yesterday, right? Kind of sharing our feelings, authenticity, those kinds of things. Here's what the Bible says in James 5, 16. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the interesting word there, healed, it literally means a physical healing. We like to kind of make some, you know, mystical example of it. It means physical healing. And not just of cancer or a cold or a flu, but inside, stress-related disease. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be held. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. Opening up authentically. We talked about courageousness yesterday. Our heart, telling the story of who we are with our whole heart. And here's three areas that I think that keep us stuck, right? We're afraid of imperfection because it makes me want to cover up. Uh, a fear of connection with others because it makes me want to hide. I'd rather hide in plain sight or fear of rejection. Now, these three fears, ironically, are in Genesis chapter three. Let me just read you a couple of the verses, right? Eve took some fruit and ate it, Genesis 3, 6. She gave some to her husband who ate with her, right? And then at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt ashamed at their nakedness. And guys, I think this is one of the things that we beat ourselves up on. Maybe we're not providing. Maybe we lost our job. Maybe we lost our job. And we don't feel guilt over that. We feel shame over that. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad worker. I'm a bad employee. I'm a bad boss. We have got to rethink that. Shame is holding us down. I think it's healthy to say, I made a bad choice at the office. I lost my job. You're not a bad employee, a bad boss. Shame is about us. I am fill in the blank, worthless. I am a bad husband. I'm a bad dad. I'm a bad, no, no. Shame, Jesus did away with shame when he died on the cross. It's okay to have appropriate guilt. Shame holds us under its hand and we need to get rid of it because it says right here, this is what happened. They were ashamed because they were revealed. They were found out. So they sewed fig leaves together. Why? To cover up. They use fig leaves. We use a smile. They hide, you know, in the bushes when God comes calling and we drive a new car. Our kids are dressed and look good, but we're dying at home. But everybody thinks we're doing okay, covering up. Then we are afraid sometimes to connect, which makes me want to hide. 
Uh, he replied, this is Adam talking to God, uh, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was exposed. I was open and you were gonna see me and I can't have you seeing what's going on in here. If you knew what I was thinking, God, and that's tongue in cheek because God does know what I'm thinking, it does help, like the verse says in James 5, 19, 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Hey, I'm struggling with this, whatever it is. And then fear of rejection makes me wanna blame. Who told you? God asking Adam, who told you that you were naked? The Lord asked, uh, have you uh, eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then I love the guy's response, right? We all know it. It was the woman you gave me, right? What do we do? Blame, blame, blame. Because if I can get the topic off me and redirect it on you, then I absolve myself of any responsibility. So he's talking to God. What happened? Yeah, God, I ate the fruit. She gave it to me. Number one, that's my first issue. Number two, you. You gave her to me. If you would have asked, I would have said no. But no, you forced her on me, right? Does anybody remember this as kids? What is this? Shame on you. See, if I can get shame off of me onto you, then I can continue to hide. God does not let them off the hook. There were consequences for their behavior, absolutely, and there's consequences for ours. But we have Jesus who allows not just one mistake, but two or three, and he has removed shame as long as grace and mercy is present. Now, when we're in that kind of hiding mode and this idea of as we you know, start to uh, think uh, or open up and think ahead, we get cynical, right? So we sarcastically demean others, like, oh, that person, they're doing this. I don't really agree with that. And we're kind of self-righteous. Maybe you don't do, I do, I still do that. This last week I did it as I was sitting with some friends. We get biblical, right? Using spirituality to point out other people's weaknesses, right? Well, you know, I lead a Bible study, so uh, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I think when we get to heaven, the ones that we think are gonna be at the front of the line, I think God's gonna go, can you guys go to the back? I think, I think we're missing something. Or we get critical and we point out the faults of others. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. It's the movie called The Kingdom. Uh, great uh, movie, and uh, I've watched it several times, but there's an interesting moment in this movie, The Kingdom, where uh, FBI director uh, James Grace, played by actor Richard Jenkins, he's being threatened by an attorney general because he had approved sending his agents into this area in The Kingdom. And the attorney general didn't like that move. It was not politically correct. And he is hammering him and threatening him. Similar to how the enemy would maybe threaten us, right? Comes to a moment, and I love the words as Richard Jenkins playing this character sits back and he says, you know, Westmoreland made all of us officers write our own obituaries during Tet. And once we clued into the fact that life is finite, the thought of losing it didn't scare us anymore. I bring that lesson with me to this job. The end comes no matter what. The only thing that matters is how do you want to go out? How do you want to go out? You want to go out covered? Retreating? Coward? Or do you want to risk it? You want to risk authenticity, vulnerability, transparency. How do you want to go out? Life's going to end. 
You want life to come out in the last three minutes before you draw your last breath? Or you want to live the journey of the rest of your life, open, honest, authentic community with other guys and your creator? I have chosen the latter. And I will tell you, the last eight years have been unbelievably. It, is there pain? Absolutely. Is there difficulty? Yes. This idea of learning stop, we have to come to an end. And this is the last point, is to pause often. Pause often. Now, this verse, Deuteronomy 5, chapter 12, or chapter 5, verse 12, and we'll end with this. It says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days a week set apart for your daily duties, regular work, but the seventh day is a day of rest. Now, you have to understand, remember, like Moses didn't have technology, nothing beeping, nothing calling, none of that stuff. He had to go look for stuff to do, but they had one day off. Now, do you know what the punishment was for disobeying the Sabbath, for working on the, does anybody know what the punishment was for working on the Sabbath day? Stoning, death. Could you imagine today, uh, yeah, if you don't take a day off, what if your boss said, you don't take a day off, you're dead. You're in trouble, you're gone, buddy. Not just fired, we're gonna take you out and throw stuff at you. Here's what I'm saying. God thought it powerful enough to have a day of rest that the punishment was so severe. Our day off now is, is what? We use our day off now to catch up on errands, right? Sabbath in the Hebrew means errands. Just kidding, that's not true. Uh, but Sabbath, day of rest, day of pause. God, God, after six days, he created the day set. He, God, God rested. If God gets one day, we should get two, maybe three. Because God needed one, God we need to look at this, but we are value, and I struggle with it, guys. You have no idea. I'm like, I have four hours here. What should I do? I should do something to be productive, and I fight with myself, and I end up doing something because it makes me feel uh, better, but not. We have to come to an end. So just take, in this moment, just, we're not going to do the four minutes, just a one minute, you know, uh, in your notes, that section that says to uh, stop, the focal point, what does it mean to me? And I just want to kind of direct this a little bit, and I want to ask you this question. What do you need to stop? What do, you, what do you need to stop? Maybe God's been tugging at your heart. Maybe during the talk in the last several minutes, you just go, you know what, I need to kind of stop doing that one thing. It could be maybe a new business partnership. It could be um, how you're spending your time, you know, away from home or at home, or maybe, maybe it's just simply, I'm on my phone all the time at my kid's soccer game or baseball game or football game or whatever it is, or I'm multitasking. One minute, one minute, and ask God the question, God, what do I need to stop? One minute, and then write that down. All right, let me close with this. When we talk about stop, it's kind of an extreme deal because most of us are kind of moving through life at a pretty healthy pace. You may think, you know what? It's never gonna come to an end for me. Uh, it's, gonna, it's gonna cost a lot, and yeah, that may be true. The one thing that gets us through to a life of contentment is hope. We have hope because of what Christ did on the cross, because of the community that you have here, we have hope. Let me read this to you. A number of years ago, researchers performed an experiment to see the effect hope has on those undergoing difficulty. 
Two sets of laboratory rats were placed in separate tubs of water. And the researchers left one set in the water and found that within an hour, they all went to see Jesus, if that's where rats go. They all died. They drowned. The other rats were periodically, every once in a while, lifted out of the water and then returned back into the tub of water. When that happened, the second set of rats swam for over 24 hours. The researchers asked, why? Why did the first set of rats drown and the second set of rats that we picked out of the water every once in a while, why did they swim for 24 hours? Here's their conclusion. Not because they were given a rest, but because they suddenly had hope. If I can hang on a little longer, a hand's going to come in and lift me out. I can't find anywhere in Scripture where God says, at the end of a few days or a few weeks, he's done, and he's going to let you go under. There's always a knot at the end of the rope. And God just seems to grow us as people through hardship, through difficulty, through stress, through perseverance, so that we may be complete, lacking in nothing, he says. We have hope. If you think you can't stop, there is hope that you can. We just have to remember that God is there to remove us from time to time. And to quote James 5.16, it's also good to have one of our brothers around to help us out of the water when we feel like we're drowning too. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for these men. Thank you for uh, their time this morning of just being here. God, I, um, I pray for a couple of the guys here. I just sense that they're just in a tight spot, difficulty, uh, hurting. Maybe they didn't even want to come today, um, but, you know, voice pushed them or something. They knew they needed to be here. God, I pray that you... Um, I pray that the God of peace will give them comfort and understanding. And I pray that uh, other brothers may come around them and they would literally feel the physical expression of you through their heart, their hands, in this community. And God, I just sense I need to pray for that in this moment. And um, be with us the rest of our time with my words, with our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.